I love flying. <laughs> I do. I love it. I like horses, too. I think some of our students are just horsing around. I think so, too. Yeah, Can you hear it? Let's hear it for amazing. ourselves again. I love it. Can you hear it right now? We have a lot of very, very mm. talented people. In this, in this wonderful school. Really and, and it is a wonderful school, and we're getting ready for another really amazing school year, which is, is coming up. And a lot of surprises are going to be coming to students of all grades, which is really neat, isn't it? Um, Joseph was really full of himself tonight. Wasn't he was. <laughs> I mean, gosh. He's pretty clever, I thought. Yeah. And is. is Dr. John really young? Well, <laughs> I saw the smiles going between them. I thought that was fun. Yeah, and it's fun that he would put in a little plug for fuel cells. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about the OLEDs and how we, we see images of ourselves. And someone this past week was saying they don't understand how you can have a picture if it's just ones and zeros. Mm. It doesn't make sense, does it? To thus, to us, <laughs> to thus. Just <laughs> to you, doesn't it? Well, I just wonder if you could explain to us how that works. <laughs> <clears throat> it is really kind of amazing. And I, I really was grateful to get caught up on organic LEDs. Um, it is really fascinating. So instead of having little LED spots, mm -hmm. you actually have a layer of material that will glow. And then you just have spots that you run the electricity through. And so that means that you really have true blacks. And I thought, wow, true black. Mm -hmm. That dishonest black is just kind of gray, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> but it, it, is, it, it is really amazing. And I, I think it's interesting. But what a great opportunity to be able to understand how you make a picture out of ones and zeros. If you realize that uh, you have that layer of material and then you have all these little circuits and the circuits can be turned on or off. They've made them so you can choose any one you want anywhere on the screen and turn it on or turn it off. And so someone made a decision. They said, if it's on, we'll call it a one. And if it's off, we'll call it a zero. That kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So on and off, so one and a zero. And the reason we use ones and zeros is because in a computer, we're trying to store information. And it, it would be real interesting if we could just take a, a little drawing we make on a piece of paper and stick it in there, but there's no place to stick it into, it's a circuit. Mm -hmm. And so all a computer can do is it can turn on or off. And we have little circuits that if you turn them on, they're designed so they'll stay on until you turn them off. And that's like storing a one there. So I'm going to turn that one on. I'm going to skip these three. Then I'm going to turn that one on. Then I'm going to skip two more and turn that one on. And then think, what if you took that pattern and turned on the circuits on this OLED screen? you'd see little places that are on. Everywhere it was a one, it would be turned on. Everywhere it was a zero, it would be turned off. And you say, well, wait a minute. What if we were to turn all the ones on so the screen looked like Peugeot? <laughs> yeah, what if? It would be like an alien encounter. 
I, I mean, it would it would be recognizable. Don't see me. No, actually, it wouldn't be you. It wouldn't be me. But it would be stunningly similar. That's true. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, I just think it's neat. Thank you, Tobias. We we feel really, really excited about real blacks, and we're all mm -hmm. going to go out and buy a new OLED television. Well, I know. He really he, that that contrast yeah. of the pictures really. I was looking at at one at the store and trying to figure out why are the blacks so deep? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just, they look really beautiful, contrast black. So, but that's not what we're talking okay. about today. What are we talking today, about? Today, we got to get on point. Okay. Well, first of all, we need to do a quick update on the, the audio sound cannons that we're trying to do for the pods. Remember, we talked about mm -hmm. those, and we're still working with them, but I have something to show. This is a reflector. You see that? And it, oh boy, it kind of looks like it's coming out, doesn't it? it? Does. That's an illusion. That. Actually, it's going in. Ooh. Well, you go. see that? Yeah. So it's it's concave in. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that if we took a speaker, everybody knows what a speaker is. It's a little thing you hook it up and it makes sound. And if we put the speaker right in the middle and played the sound of the Acellus teacher talking, well then the sound would go out towards the student, but if any came out sideways like it's gonna go see the other student, it had hit this reflector, and the reflector would bend it towards our student. So only one student could, could hear it. So can you imagine being in a classroom with the pods, and up over your heads, yeah, like that. Oh, 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 I don't know, can we get it on the camera? You know, we'd have a little higher, but it seems like our camera doesn't want to go much higher. There we go. Um, you'd have there. these hanging over there. Now, we'd have to have something to hang them on. We would. Mm -hmm. So we'd have to invent a contraption that would come out, which that'd be kind of, but wouldn't that look neat? Sci-fi. Uh -huh. It would. And, it will. And maybe, maybe they could be little. Here's another cone, only this is just a, a little cone. And again, we've got a hole in the middle, so we could put our speaker right there in the middle. It's a little harder to hold, if I can hold it like that. <laughs> Do you think it would work that small, that little? So the other students couldn't hear? What? I couldn't hear you because <laughs> this moment. Actually, uh, that is going to be my project because I'm inventioneering, uh -huh. and so I have to try it. Now, this speaker is too big, but there's another speaker that will fit mm -hmm. back in the back. And so, as it comes out, I want to go just to the student right underneath it. But this, this would be kind of neat to have little cones, wouldn't it? It would be mm -hmm. really neat. And then, you know, on the 4th of July, we had snow cones. <laughs> but, but that's not related. No. Okay, just so you know. So, still working on it. So now, I'm at the point where I'm ready to drive these up. But the idea is I only want sound right underneath so one student hears it mm -hmm. so you don't get confused by hearing all the other lessons going on at the same time. And we need this. We do. We need it bad. So coming up for Celis Pods, mentioning project going along this way. It's coming along. <clears throat> okay, now what else? Okay, let's get started. Okay. <laughs> oh, now there's this. This is a little ball uh -huh. it's a fun little ball and we but today I want this little ball to represent 
the center of a big atom. And the atom that I want it to represent is an atom like either plutonium or uranium, when it has lots of protons and neutrons in the center, okay? With that kind of an atom, you have a tendency for it to decay. Some atoms decay. If an atom is the type that decays, scientists call it a radioactive atom. And what that means is every once in a while, it will shoot out a subatomic particle, neutron, neuron, something like that. And that particle goes shooting off through space until it hits another nucleus. And when it hits another nucleus, this one fractures into two pieces, and it puts out two more particles. And so if you have a whole bunch of atoms, and they're close enough together, pretty soon you'll get a chain reaction or a nuclear reaction. In the case of an atomic bomb, you have a whole bunch of these very close together, but if you did that, they would explode because they'd have all of these particles. So instead of having them close together, you have them further apart. And then when it's time to set off the bomb, you move them close together. And that's all you have to do to cause it to explode. Okay, and sometimes they even use dynamite to push it together fast so that you get a chain reaction. In a nuclear reactor, on the other hand, we were trying not to make an explosion, we were trying to make electricity. We just have these particles not too close so they'd explode, but we have them close enough that they excite each other. And so we put these uh, fuel rods in and they they start giving off these, these particles. Well then, in between them, we push down control rods. And control rods are a material that absorbs some of these particles so they don't hit another uh, radioactive atom. And so by pulling the control rods up and down out of this reactor, we can make it hotter or colder. And that's how a nuclear reactor works. So all you need is some radioactive fuel, and you put them close enough. And actually, the way they put them in is they have rods, fuel rods, made out of these atoms, and they put them down in. One by itself is not enough to get a runaway reaction. And that's why they're long and narrow. But if you start getting a few, then they start to excite each other, and they have more atoms starting to break up and give off energy. Every time an atom breaks up, it turns some matter into energy, okay? And so they put control rods down to control it, and what they want to do is make it hot, hot enough to heat up water to 1,000 degrees, is a typical temperature for a reactor, and then they run it through a turbine to cool the water back down and put out electricity to us, okay? So the control rods, go up and down automatically to make sure the reaction doesn't run away and, and explode. Well, that brings up a really interesting story that I want to share with you. It's, uh, some of us remember something that happened in March of 1979. Do you remember, do you remember what you were doing on March 1979? Mm -mm. Let's see. I can't. <laughs> well, 
it turns out that a nuclear reactor that was built on Three Mile Island mm. had a meltdown. They had an accident. And that accident uh, became quite serious. And there was uh, several reactors. I'll show you a picture. This is Three Mile Island. And these are the reactors that were generating power. And something happened in one of the reactors. And they, they had uh, a reactor that overheated. And they tried to, uh, to stop it. And a whole series of problems took place. And so they had a reactor run out of control. When it runs out of control, it gets so hot that it can melt down. And, and that's where the thing they call the China syndrome comes in. Mm -hmm. The China syndrome. You know what the China syndrome is? Yeah. I've heard of it. That's where you go to China. So they say when a nuclear reaction runs away and there's not enough atoms to explode, it just gets really hot. And it gets so hot that there is no metal on planet Earth that it won't melt. In fact, it will melt rock, it will melt dirt, it will melt everything. So if you have a reactor that's that hot, it starts melting. And as it melts, it goes down deeper and deeper in the Earth. And it says it'll melt all the way through the Earth and end up in China. And that's what we call the China syndrome, because it's, it's a meltdown. And so we started having a, uh, a reactor meltdown. And I remember in March of 1979 hearing about the accident at Three Mile Island. And people were very, very scared. There were places there that they evacuated people. And it was a really, really intense situation. And we'd watch it on the news and wonder what was going to happen. And everybody was pretty nervous. And then on the evening of the last day of March in 1979, I got a phone call. And I was at home, and I took the phone call, and they said, this is the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Those are the people that handle things like nuclear reactors on behalf of the United States government. And they said, we have a very serious problem at Three Mile Island, and we're wondering if you could help us. What'd you say? What'd you feel? I said, what's the problem? <laughs> and they explained it to me. The reactor, because it's radioactive, is inside of a building. They build a big concrete building with the reactor inside. So if anything went wrong and it started to leak off radioactive gases, it would be contained and it wouldn't go out where it would make a lot of people really sick. Some of you have heard about Chernobyl uh, over in the Soviet Union where they had a reactor that had an accident and it put out these radioactive gases and there's a pie shape downwind from the reactor where uh, it became very, very dangerous and, and people can't live. And, we were really afraid that was going to happen here in the United States. And he says, the reactor had an accident, and it melted down, and it ruined the instruments. We can't really see what's happening inside the reactor. But one thing we know is the building built over the reactor, the big, giant, concrete building, to make sure nothing ever leaks, 
is now full of hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And we're afraid it's going to explode, blow up the building, and let out all the radioactivity. Uh, I think my reaction to that was something like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and then they said, can you please help us get rid of the hydrogen? Because you're the hydrogen man. Yeah, I, I guess that's it. <laughs> yeah. So I said, well, uh, do what we can. And they said, okay. Um, my next question was, well, so what is the reactor like? Describe it to me. What's it like? And of course, they had these control rods that go up and down to control the reaction. I knew that from chemistry at the university. And so I asked if they could give me some details. And they said, we'll send you a set of the engineering blueprints of the plant. These are drawings that show every detail of, these, of this reactor. And they said, we'll send it to you. Well, I'm clear across the United States. And it's like, you know, 10 minutes to midnight. <laughs> and they said, we will send it to you by supersonic jet fighter. <laughs> now I'm starting to like, you know, pretty hot wow, stuff. Yeah. Well, okay. okay. And they asked me if I could go down to the local airport and they could be there in about two hours. And so a fighter jet from the United States Air Force took off with a set of plans rolled up and came streaking across the country to bring them to me. And I was, I was concerned. <laughs> you know, very concerned. Yeah. So I have a wonderful team of people that work with me, and I thought, you know, I need these guys. I need them. By now it was like 12, 15. I thought, we ought to meet and start getting ready so that when they get here we can look at them because they're in a big hurry. They want answers tonight. Mm -hmm. So I called up my guys. Hi. Yeah, this, this is our And I need your help. Did you hear about the Three Mile Island accident? Everybody had heard about it. It was big yeah. news. And I says, well, they've asked us if we would get rid of the hydrogen bubble in the reactor. And my guy says, April Fools. Aww. <laughs> I guess it was, was the end of March. It was the beginning of April yeah. Fools. They said, we know you. <laughs> it's just a joke. They didn't call you. <laughs> yes, they did. They called and you need to come to work, right? <laughs> April Fools. <laughs> Did you do April Fool's? I finally had to get get Tanya to call him and say, "Hey, <laughs> he's serious." <laughs> so it, yeah, I don't know. You got to work on your reputation. <laughs> but uh, in a few hours, this jet came streaking into the airport and taxied over and handed me the roll of drawings. And I took it back to the laboratory and we opened them up and started looking at them. And when I saw the control rods, and it was detailed drawings that they used to build this plant. So it had all the materials and the dimensions and the tolerances. And I looked at it, and I called the guy back at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and I said, I know how to get rid of your hydrogen bubble. And he said, how? And I said, you're, you're saying that the bubble right now is inside the reactor, and you want to get it out. And he said, yes. And I said, well, just wait a minute. He said, wait a minute? And I said, yeah, just wait a minute, and it will come out. He said, what? And I said, those slip sills on the control rods 
will never hold hydrogen. Mm. It's such a small atom, it won't be able to go through there. It won't leak out into the big containment building. I mean, it will leak out into the big containment building because they won't hold it. Mm -hmm. And he said, oh, my goodness. So they contacted the people that made those sills, mm -hmm. and they said, hey, they do hold hydrogen, that pressure. We tested it. It absolutely holds it. So they called me back. They said they tested it with hydrogen, and it held And I said, <laughs> I know they do. I know hydrogen. Mm -hmm. And the hydrogen I know will go right through there, <laughs> go right through those cells. And they said, well, they tested them. Well, it turns out they tested them with helium because hydrogen was too dangerous. Helium oh, is goodness. twice as big as hydrogen. <laughs> and it leaked out. The next day, they were all out in the containment building. And they says, okay, now your mission is to get it out of the containment building because this is really dangerous. If that blows up and that building opens up, then we're going to have a major, major accident because it's very radioactive in there. I didn't know how to get it out of the containment building. I thought, well, I could bring my car and we could run it. <laughs> but um, it... It really became a very, very interesting experience for me. And um, they said, it doesn't matter how much it costs. You need to do everything you can to figure out how to get rid of that hydrogen. Now, I had a lot of ideas. Why don't you make a hole in the concrete containment building and then just bring it out through a special filter. They said, we, we are not going to touch that concrete. That's too dangerous. And why don't you do this? No, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go near that. No, it's dangerous there. We can't get near it. And I said, well, what can we do? And they said, we have cooling water that goes into the reactor and circulates and comes back out. We've got to do it with the circulating cooling water. I said, you, you want to get rid of the hydrogen with the cooling water? I said, yeah, that's all we got. So went back to our team and I said, guys, how can we have circulating water get rid of hydrogen? You know, you make hydrogen by breaking water down. How can we get rid of it? And then we got the idea, what if we make the hydrogen back into water? So to do that, you need to have oxygen and you have to have a platinum catalyst. We couldn't go inside the catalyst, but we had the water circulating around. And then I remembered something that I was taught in school, and that is that fish can breathe underwater. Fish need oxygen, mm -hmm. but they can breathe underwater because a little bit of oxygen is dissolved in the water. Not very much, but a little bit. And as the water goes through the fish's gills, it pulls the oxygen out of the water, and that's how they breathe. And I thought, if fish can find enough oxygen to breathe, maybe we can make a little contraption that would turn the hydrogen into water using oxygen that was dissolved in the water. We had plenty of hydrogen. We just needed the oxygen. So I called them back, and I said, hey, we've got an idea. Maybe. Maybe, we never tried this, but maybe we would be able, under these conditions, to make this reaction take place. And I, uh, 
I should say that the water going around in this circulation loop was a thousand degrees. It was really hot, but it was under pressure. It was a 1,000 psi, so it didn't turn to steam because there's too much pressure holding it. And that's what they—that was their operating pressure on the system. So we had a thousand degree water, a thousand psi. Could we actually use the oxygen dissolved in the water to get the hydrogen out? And they said, "Are you sure it'll work?" And I said, "No, I never operated an experiment at a thousand degrees." and 1,000 PSI, and he said, well, how can you be sure? And I said, short of building a reactor, I don't know how we'd know. And he said, well, can you build a reactor? <laughs> they expect a lot from you. And I said, well, um, we could build a simulator of a reactor. I could build a contraption that could hold 1,000 PSI and 1,000 degrees temperature, and we could build a little black box with platinum in it and see if it worked. Please do it. <laughs> and I said, it's going to be kind of pricey. Cost doesn't matter. Just get it done. We'll reimburse you. That's kind of like carte blanche. <laughs> but I, I really wanted to help. And so we started having all these components we needed flown in. And we built a model of the Three Mile Island reactor in our laboratory. I wish I had a really good photograph or video to show you because it was really neat. How big was it, the model? It was yay big. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what I do have, though, what do you have? is I happen to have a newspaper uh, type photograph mm -hmm. out of the final report we sent. I can show you that. Would you like to see a picture Love of the reactor? To. You have to look real careful to see it. So here it is. Can you see that big white thing? Uh -huh. That was our model reactor. We called it a Three Mile Island Simulator. And the guy over on the right was the operator. And look, there's a Billings I computer yeah. right there doing its thing. And we had it all hooked up to the computer. And we created the temperature and the pressure of exactly the conditions they had. We put a bubble of hydrogen inside there. It was all wrapped up in that insulation to keep it that hot. And then we had a pump recirculating it. And we built the little platinum black box. So as the water went through, the hydrogen would have a chance to react with the oxygen dissolved in the water. And it worked. You really are it the man, act. aren't you? Oh. <laughs> oh, could you say that one more time? <laughs> you really are the man, aren't you? Oh, it's okay. <laughs> it's no biggie. But uh, it did work. It really, really Amazing. did work. And we saw the hydrogen just go away. And we had to keep adding oxygen, but we could do it way out here, outside. Mm -hmm. We would bubble uh, air. In, in our case, we use pure oxygen. See those cylinders in the back? Mm -hmm. We'd bubble the oxygen through, and it would dissolve in the water. It would go out, and on the surface of this catalyst, the dissolved oxygen that fish would breathe if they liked hot water, <laughs> and the hydrogen would combine and make new water. And so little by little by little, it was a way to nibble all oh. of that that hydrogen away without any explosions, without any flames, because it all happened one atom at a time under the water. Now, 
this picture is actually, can we zoom back on the picture a little bit? This is actually part of a report. You can see some yeah. of the photograph of the simulated reactor, um, including instrumentation. So this is the thing we built, and we, we gave them a great big report. And I got this really nice letter and this certificate from the, the head of this uh, emergency committee at the Nuclear Regulatory Commission thanking us for our involvement in this project. But this story doesn't stop here because um, we worked straight through. This took days. And during that time, we actually uh, would go to sleep right at the lab trying to get this all done. And it was one of those real crazy things where we felt like it was life and death because there were people that were really it in was. danger and yeah. a lot of people ended up being evacuated. Uh, it was the worst nuclear accident in the U.S. history, and I hope it forever stays that way. But it turns out that the reaction or the reactor was brought back to safety, and, and it really did not become a big catastrophe like it, it could have, which we're pretty happy about. But there were other things that happened as a result of this. After it was all done, um, I was contacted, and, and now this would probably be well, it was six years later, I was contacted by the United States Navy. And they said, Roger, we've got a problem. We are operating nuclear-powered submarines. And these nuclear-powered submarines are able to submerge, and they can stay underwater and go all around the world and the only thing that makes them come up is because they need more food for the crew. Because they have that much power, they can just go and go and go and go, which is really neat. He says, but if anything goes wrong with the reactor, then we've got a problem. And the problem is we have to get back home. We have to turn off the reactor so it doesn't blow up if it, if it has a meltdown or a shutdown. And then we got to get the submarine home, and the submarine could be halfway around the world. How do we get it home? And he said, right now, right then, what they had was a way that they could start a big diesel generator, and they could drive back home, limping along at slow speed. But to run the diesel generator, they had to have air, so they had to surface. And he says, we have nuclear missiles in this submarine. And we don't want to just be driving around on top of the sea with these submarines. We need a way to stay submerged till we get home. And they said, isn't there some way you could do that with your hydrogen fuel cell? So I said, well, if you'd like me to, I'll work on it. So they actually gave us a contract to see if we could find a way to make those submarines be able to get home. And my idea was that it, there's plenty of water where submarines live. <laughs> so if I could take a piece of, of metal, aluminum, aluminum rod, and put it inside of a tank, a plastic tank, and let water come in, and then if I could put the right salt 
uh, hydroxyl salt in there, the aluminum would corrode. And as it would corrode, it'd be like aluminum rusting, which it normally doesn't do because it has an oxide coating. But with this solution around it, it would corrode and it would bubble off hydrogen. And I could make enough hydrogen to be able to get one of these things home. And so we figured it all out, and aluminum's pretty safe. It'd just be aluminum rods that they would be able to use. So we got all excited, and we figured out how many pounds of aluminum they would need to power the ship, and we knew how much power they needed. But then we got to the part where, in order to run the fuel cell, we need hydrogen, but we also need oxygen. And so we thought, well, we'll just send up a little kind of a funnel thing on a balloon up to the surface and let it pull oxygen in to run the fuel cell. And I told them that, yeah, you, you could just put up a little thing to bring in air. And they said, no, we can't. It would be too easy to find. We can't do that. I said, well, you got to have oxygen. I said, well, we can't. And then I remembered Three Mile Island. If we could get hydrogen to react with dissolved oxygen. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of dissolved oxygen in the fish, I mean, <laughs> in the big fish <laughs> tank in the ocean. What if we could get the oxygen out of the seawater? Mm -hmm. And so they said, try it. So I built a miniature ocean in my laboratory. <laughs> And we hooked it up to a fuel cell, and we put hydrogen and seawater in. Of course, as the oxygen come out, we'd have to get new seawater. So we circulated seawater through, and we, and we got the fuel cell to run. It only worked at half power, but we could make it bigger. Mm -hmm. So that was enough. Way to go. And I said, hey, guess what? It works. And they got all excited. And they said, but does it work with water from out in the Pacific? And I said, well, I assume it does. We'll send you some. <laughs> so I, I kind of thought what it must be like when they got the water. I wonder if it was a submarine or a diver. How did they, did they, got, they sent me a nice <laughs> container of water from the Pacific. What about water from the Atlantic? I don't know. We'll send you some. <laughs> and then the real interesting one says, you know, sometimes we operate underneath the North Pole, under the ice. Will it work with that water? Because it may not have as much oxygen because it's underneath the ice. We'll send you some water. <laughs> so I got water from underneath the North Pole. And I had this little, uh, I should take a picture of because I still have my laboratory set up mm -hmm. where we'd put the water, we'd call that the ocean. Mm -hmm. And then the fuel cells we'd test it with. And sure enough, the water under the North Pole has oxygen and it worked fine. I've seen your ocean. You've seen it. Yes, yes. You, you did do a tour of my lab, and you mm -hmm. did see that. It is <clears throat> exciting that we were able to find a solution. So technology very often is, uh, uh, well, one maybe bad thing gives you knowledge that then maybe you can do something good later on. And in this case, they both ended up good. Uh, it's interesting that uh, hydrogen was made in the Three Mile Island reactor because they had water in contact with very, very hot metal. And the hot metal reacts with the water and is oxidized. It's like 
rusting. If you, if you take still and heat it up enough so that it will rust very fast, the thing that is given off is hydrogen. Because when, when still rusts, it's getting an oxygen coating. It's becoming that kind of orangish-brown rust. But that oxygen is coming out of the water. Where's the hydrogen go? It comes out. So a lot of things you can do if you learn the personality of these atoms. And, and every atom has a different personality. If you have just one proton in the middle of the atom and one electron, it has a personality that's the best of all. We call it hydrogen. <laughs> you know, can you imagine what Peche would look like if all of our hydrogen atoms were suddenly removed? 60% of Peche is hydrogen. Yeah, I wouldn't look very good. I think you'd probably look Oh, like from outer space or something. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. I wouldn't, I yeah. don't, I, let's not Well, do anyway, <laughs> so hydrogen is a very interesting gas. You can burn it in a hydrogen engine. You can do a lot of things with hydrogen. But if you just take one more proton, just like the first one, an identical proton, and stick it in the, in the heart, in the nucleus, and take one more identical electron and put it in orbit, then all of a sudden it's helium. Helium's twice as heavy. It will not burn. It's an inert gas. And it's still great for balloons. It makes balloons float up. But only half as fast they float up with hydrogen. Because hydrogen is, is so much lighter. So it's, it's kind of fun to think that all of these elements that we work with are just another proton, another electron, another proton, another electron. And every time you add one more proton, the whole personality of the element changes. Amazing. And it becomes a gas, it becomes liquid, it becomes a solid. It wants to react, it won't react, it'll react with certain things. And the study of the personality of these atoms is what we call chemistry. Mm -hmm. And people that understand chemistry can do amazing things. The knowledge that we seek for when we get an education is an accumulation of little bits of knowledge that have been discovered by educators, by scientists, by people that have lived all over this world for many, many years. And we can go into a class and in just an hour and a day for one school year we learn knowledge that's taken millions of people their lifetimes to discover. And that knowledge then enables us to do things like getting rid of a nasty bubble at Three Mile Island or powering a submarine underneath the ocean without any oxygen, without any hydrogen fuel tank. We couldn't store the hydrogen. would have never worked. But we could store the aluminum. The only problem with storing hydrogen as a metal, you know, you could do aluminum, you could do nickel, you could do a lot of different kinds of metals. But the only problem of using that for your source of hydrogen is that the metal is more valuable than the hydrogen. So that's why we're in the car every day, every day, every day. We care about the cost of the hydrogen, so we want to use gas. But if you only need it in case of an emergency, 
then just storing it as a piece of aluminum is a great way to do it. By the way, off that, I decided I wanted to do something really interesting. I wanted to see if I could run a car on aluminum. And maybe we're out of time today, but that's something we probably ought to bring up because I actually built what I call the pop can car. <laughs> if you take an aluminum can and you either need to drink the pop or get someone to. Is that me? And when they're empty, you kind of crush them, you know, and you save them. Well, what if you took a whole big plastic container full of pop cans and then you put some water in it? Nothing would happen. Aluminum would be very reactive with water, except when it starts to react, it grows a layer of oxygen around the aluminum, which is like a really good protective paint job. And so it stops reacting. If you take a piece of sodium, that's the metal that's in salt, and drop it in water, it reacts and even bursts into flames. It gives off hydrogen so fast. But aluminum doesn't. It'll, it'll coat itself, and, and so cans will sit there and nothing will happen. But then if you put the right salt in to get a, a reactive hydroxyl solution, then it will bubble off hydrogen. And I wonder, could you do that and make it run a car? And so was invented the hydrogen pop can car project. And we'll have to show you how that turned out. Stay yeah. tuned. Okay? Okay. All right. Thank you. See you next time.